K-A-L-W. I'm outside the East Palo Alto Clubhouse, run by the Boys and Girls Club of the Peninsula. It's at the end of a tree-lined residential street and across from three small churches. Right next door is an elementary school. In normal times, the clubhouse would be full of students and after-school activities and tutors offering homework help to kids from kindergarten through 12th grade. But during COVID, these sessions went virtual, and the clubhouse became a place where local families in need could pick up meals. But six total boxes per car, based on the car. Here you go. Come on, ma'am. When the school district that serves East Palo Alto found that a quarter of families needed childcare, the Boys and Girls Club teamed up with schools to create Wi-Fi-enabled learning hubs. Within days, families of 250 students wanted to sign up. The East Palo Alto Clubhouse opened up as a place where students could stay connected and learn while schools were closed during the pandemic. Students worked at socially distanced desks, had access to free Wi-Fi without distractions, and got healthy meals during the day, things they might not have if at home. Girls, that's class. Lily just called for you. This is What Works. We're talking about people and local groups who are innovating solutions around the Bay. I'm your host, Sonia Narang, taking you on a tour of neighborhoods where you'll learn about impacts that can stretch beyond the pandemic. We'll start today's journey with Lena Potts from the Boys and Girls Club of the Peninsula. As the unit director of the Moldau Zaffaroni Clubhouse in East Palo Alto, she works closely with local families. We've gotten to know her over the past several months, and it's great to have her on the show. Thank you, Lena, for being with us today. Of course. Thank you, Sonia. I wanted to start by having you introduce yourself uh, and what exactly the Boys and Girls Club does in East Palo Alto specifically, because you are a national network. So what are the significant issues that your clubhouse addresses in East Palo Alto? Here at the East Palo Alto Clubhouse, um, I supervise the clubhouse location and also the uh, our school site location at Los Robles Ronald McNair Academy, which is adjacent to the clubhouse. Um, and then here specifically at the East Palo Alto Clubhouse, we serve students K through 12. Uh, and at Los Robles McNair, we serve um, students K through 5. And so, you know, uh, our goal is to provide really robust and supportive after school services to local community youth. We are not exclusive to any school um, or any school district. Really, there's just no exclusivity. We want to be an open-door, true community program for East Palo Alto youth. Now, I know you've described in the past East Palo Alto's specific um, issues. Can you talk about, you know, what some of these families have faced in East Palo Alto? Um, East Palo Alto has struggled with um, housing insecurity very, very seriously over the last few years. This neighborhood is really, folks are being priced out very rapidly. And we've seen over the course of the last, um, you know, five, 10 years, an increase in our families living, you know, two to three families in one apartment or in one house to be able to afford to keep their lives here. Um, and so just the the financial strain that people are under here with housing prices raising the, rising the way that they are um, is, is insane. Um, it's just absolutely insane to watch. I just can't imagine being one of our parents um, over the course of this year. You know, folks who I've seen um, over my last six years here at BGCP, um, 
working tirelessly to provide for their families and not just provide financially for their families, but also to provide joy for their families, right? That's one of the things I love the most about East Palo Alto is this is a community filled with joy, filled with overcoming, filled with the beauty of having really accomplished something in the face of strife. That's um, a huge part of the fabric of this community. Um, and, And folks got hit here with more challenge than I think was imaginable pre-pandemic. I'm proud to see how people have persevered. I'm proud to see people climbing out of it, Uh, but it's going to take some time. The support you provide is so necessary, and the pandemic caused a lot of disruptions, you know, across schools and even affected the clubhouse and the activities you offer. So what happened during the pandemic and how did you work with those closures to still provide some of these really important services? Yeah, uh, pivoting when the pandemic began was insane. I think, you know, probably um, everyone listening had no concept things would unfold the way that they did. So within a week, um, we understood that in-person learning for that school year seemed unlikely to pick up. Uh, and we pivoted to providing virtual programs for our students after their virtual school days, uh, which we understood would not be an ideal fit for everyone, um, but sort of in the moment with no real heads up. Um, it was the best that we knew to do um, for many kids. It was an opportunity to still be social in um, a less structured way than a school day. It was also an opportunity to still get that homework support and still get that enrichment. Uh, In the fall, we began running community hubs so that students could do some degree of in-person learning, um, particularly for families who didn't have childcare to be able to support continued at-home distance learning for their students. We opened up our sites as um, a safe space for students to access reliable Wi-Fi, get fed, um, and be in some sort of community while they were on virtual school days. School districts surveyed families and they found that a quarter of families needed childcare, which is another tough spot to put families in when schools are closed. So, um, you know, how popular were these hubs and what kind of feedback were you getting from parents and students? For, you know, a ton of folks, it's just a real need uh, and people were pretty trapped. You can't go to work if there's no one to watch your kid and you can't provide for your family if you can't go to work. Uh, and school and after-school programs provide childcare. They also provide food. They provide nourishment for kids. Um, and so it, it was just a huge deal to have kids unable to go to school and unable to be in after-school programs. Um, and it put families um, who are already in a tough spot and already relatively disenfranchised in, in a bind. So can you, you know, as someone who works with students of all ages, kindergarten through 12th grade, can you describe what were some of the biggest effects that closed schools had on young people? For about six weeks, we had one kinder teacher on site, and we really wanted those kinders because, you know, if you think about a group of kids that have gotten robbed, I mean, don't get me wrong, everyone's gotten robbed, but, you know, kinders, seniors, freshmen in college, um, these are the kids who my heart aches for the most. Um, the, the kinders had never been to school. They just missed the entire opportunity of learning the social skills, the everything about being to school. And so we really felt like it was important for the kids to get as much face time as possible with their teacher live. 
What kinds of activities does your staff do alongside the school staff? Because of social distancing guidelines, had to have the kinder split into three classrooms, which meant that she was going to have to rotate to a certain degree. Um, so even though they were on the school campus in a classroom, they were still Zoomers, you know, they were still um, seeing her via Zoom. But our staff were then miming along with her exactly what she was doing. So if she, the, the classroom she was in, she might be pointing to a board with letters on it or with sight words on it so that students could learn those effectively. Well, it's a lot harder to learn that when you're six years old on Zoom than if you're able to hear your teacher who is, you know, has all this expertise and see one of our BGC. CP adult mentors who are really caring and awesome people point to those same letters, those same sight words, and you get that in-person feel, I think, as much as as possible. So I'm really proud of the staff um, across all of our sites for, um, as we call it, quote, getting in kids' business, right? Uh, Our staff have paper schedules for each and every student. Uh, Our staff, if something seems fishy, they're just going to go ahead and email the teacher themselves to make sure. Our staff has all of the Zoom codes for every kid you know, and and they're assigned, you know, a group of eight or nine students who you better just stay on them and helicopter parent them all day. I also wanted to ask if there are other programs that the Boys and Girls Club of the Peninsula has been hosting or organizing that actually brings to mind that you've been working on vaccine education and getting resources out to the public in Spanish, which is the predominantly spoken language in East Palo Alto. So can you talk about that and other programs too? Yeah, absolutely. Folks getting vaccinated is super important here. Um, a huge percentage of uh, East Palo Alto residents are frontline workers. Um, and so people being able to get vaccinated quickly and keep their families safe um, is just such a huge deal. Why has it been so important for the Boys and Girls Club to make this a priority, you know, as as a group that normally typically deals with youth? Why is this so important? It's so important because it keeps our kids and families safe, right? Um, you know, East Palo Alto has the highest COVID rates in San Mateo County by far and has throughout the course of the pandemic. Um, low-income communities of color have been hit harder by COVID. I want to make sure that people have the ability to make choices. Um, and that is not what's always true for folks here. They don't always have access to all of the options. And so we're really pushing access and availability to all of the options. As California emerges from this pandemic, how are you going to ramp up your after-school activities and your educational programs for youth? We are having what we call a supercharged summer, um, where we are, we're back. We're back big. We're back in action. Um, here at the East Palo Alto Clubhouse, we will be serving uh, high school students at the clubhouse. Um, and we're really excited to have kids back in the building for summer for, for an after-school day. I missed it so much. Everyone at BGCP is thrilled to have summer back and to have summer be sort of the first step back. It, it feels right. That was Lena Potts. She's the unit director of the Boys and Girls Club of the Peninsula's East Palo Alto Clubhouse. East Palo Alto is one of the few cities on the peninsula where lower-income earners have been able to afford to live. When the pandemic shut down offices and restaurants, people who couldn't work from home were suddenly without a paycheck. That's when local groups such as the Ecumenical Hunger Program, or EHP for short, ramped up their work to help in any way possible. I'm here outside this neighborhood nonprofit that's been working for more than 40 years to help residents survive. 
Over the past year, they went into overdrive, doubling their food giveaways and making sure people have more than just meals by distributing household goods, clothing, and furniture. In their parking lot, in fact, there are two large donation collection trucks and bins for people to donate goods. This table is so useful. It's on an industrial street just down the block from a newly built youth center and across from a large steel warehouse. It's a great table. They said if, I, if it doesn't go, I have to take it home. Well, there you go. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> At their headquarters, dedicated staff match specific donated items with the people who need those the most. They secure beds for people returning from the hospital, replacement fridges for families who lost jobs, and finances for those who can't make the rent. Reporter Scott Carroll explains how they've been keeping struggling East Palo Alto residents afloat. Nevada Butler sits at a small desk squeezed between stacks of donated clothing and furniture in a big storeroom. It's the headquarters of the Ecumenical Hunger Program, a project to address food insecurity. But even though it's known as a food pantry, it also has a warehouse filled with everything from baby clothes to microwaves and refrigerators. I'm so sorry. Warehouse! She's answering the phone and flipping through a thick three-ring binder crammed with handwritten pages. Marianne? Marianne, are you still coming? Navita is 79 and has been working with the program since it began more than four decades ago. She used to be the organization's executive director, but today she's more like a combination of a personal shopper and a matchmaker, linking financially strapped community members to things they need. And the program is very busy. I'll get them to open the gate and let you in, okay? But you might have to wait. It's people in here. Let some of the people come out before you come in, okay? Okay, bye-bye. When the program started, it was just at a time when people were beginning to think about getting unused food to families in need. And so volunteers would go into dumpsters at the stores and save out vegetables that were kind of day old, tired and everything, and clean them up and give them out to families. And plus, at that time, we would buy canned soup, crackers and things like that to give. They didn't have their spacious food pantry back then. If it was fresh, I had to get it out the same day. Now we have a walk-in freezer and a walk-in cooler. We actually have a real food closet and everything. It's been a blessing. Today they're working with a food bank and grocery stores, like Trader Joe's, to redirect surplus food to people in need instead of the landfill. And they've gone from serving 200 families a month to serving 400 families a week. People get the food stamps and still it's not enough to last a whole month. They're coming in asking for help. And with the pandemic, you'll see all kinds of people. Sometimes you think they're donors and they're actually coming in to ask for help. I'm very embarrassed about asking for help. A lot have never had to do this before. When I visit the program, it's 2.30 in the afternoon. At least a dozen cars are lined along the street and snake through the parking lot. There's a row of pop-up tents in front of the food pantry and walk-in freezer. They shade stacks of boxes filled with a variety of fresh, frozen, and packaged foods. James Fakame-Lalu and Cameron Ragland load bags and boxes of food into the cars. Both are longtime East Palo Alto residents themselves. These are prepackaged food boxes. They're usually for individual families. And it has snacks, stuff to last them at least a day or two. Yeah, like there's some people that don't have homes, that don't have microwaves, so a lot of the time it's like to-go stuff. Yeah. James says it's not uncommon for him to see people he knows coming in for help. Now with 
COVID, I see more friends than I used to see before. Uh, a lot of people are out of work because of COVID. James's coworker, Cameron Raglan, says long before COVID, other things were making it tougher to afford to live here. A lot of tech companies, they're moving in. You know, a lot of tech companies, they're like Facebook, Amazon, especially Amazon, Google. They come in because they're getting property really cheap out here, right? And that's cool because it brings jobs to the area, you know, and it, it brings a little more life to the area. But at the same time, it makes the property value go up. John Mahoney gets help from the project and has also lived in East Palo Alto since he was a child. In recent years, he has watched as people have moved away. I have a, a really good friend of mine, really good friend. He'd been here since the 80s, a little bit before me. He wasn't able to afford his rent because his landlord raised his rent by, I think, $300, $400, which is just a substantial amount. So he ended up going back to the islands. He moved back to Tonga. He couldn't even move to any nearby cities because it was like a domino effect of greed everywhere. The program has been a lifeline for John to help cover the basics when things are tight. This visit, he and a volunteer are searching through the racks filled with kitchenware. I was, I was looking for a, a big pot because um, I, I have eight kids, so you know I need a lot of, a lot of food. But yeah, I was looking for a bigger pot, but most of the time they're very sought after over here. Because um, almost everybody, every family's Palto has three, three kids at least or more. So they always go after the big pots. Although John has seen many families leave his community, he also knows firsthand how the program is a resource to help other families stay. Families that are still here right now struggling, they wouldn't even be here because they would have to spend money um, that they could be using for their utilities and rent rather than on clothing and, you know, food and houseware, house, you know, products when they get from EHP, so it, is, it was a blessing, it truly is. Up front in the warehouse, Navita is directing volunteers to keep everything running smoothly. Uh, stay with families and see what they're doing because they're in boxes over there. We haven't even gone through Navita seems to have a remarkable handle on every item that's in storage, but also every client that calls or comes to the door. A TV? I don't and call nobody for no TV. I didn't call anybody. But let me do this and, and tell anybody to... Oh, excuse me just a second. He's picking up a TV stand. It's a TV stand that's back there. Just one minute, okay? As you can see, our clientele is in a lot of different languages. And sometimes it's pointing at things because we're not sure. She tells me that often people come in for something small, like a TV stand or a nice set of clothes for a job interview. But the program shows a more profound impact when working with people and families who face extreme needs. Sometimes we'll get a call from a social worker or a public health nurse saying, I have this family, they've been evicted or they lost everything. And we'll put those families to the top of the line. I had a young man that called and say he had just found housing sleeping on the floor. And so he's picking up a bed this afternoon. I got a bed in today at noontime, he's picking it up this afternoon. Navida flips through the pages in her binder and passes her finger over the entries, each one giving a glimpse into a life in East Palo Alto. She tells me about a client who was disabled and sleeping on a folding bed without a mattress. He moved to Modesto, so a staff member who has family there volunteered to drive down a new bed and mattress. You try to do those kind of things because, you know, not for the grace of God, there go I. You know, and I just, I'm thankful that we're here to do it. As the afternoon is winding down, residents keep trickling in. 
and Navida and the staff at the Ecumenical Hunger Program are there to meet their needs, no matter how big or small. I see this right here, I just found it. Uh, okay, now just because you see it, it doesn't mean, I know, wait, where is Emerald? Emerald's getting an iron from uh, Okay, you can take it. Okay, you can take it, so but much. just sign it, make sure you sign it all out. I will, okay? I will, I will. All right. Thank you. Okay. May I help you? Captain? Uh, hold on, okay? That story was reported by Scott Carroll. In our next episode, we'll stay in the South Bay community of East Palo Alto, where doctors are prescribing part-time to keep people healthy. We'll also embed with a promotora. That's a Spanish-speaking community health worker. We'll follow her door-to-door -door as she gets out info about the COVID vaccine and rent relief. This is why we do this work, and then we do it because we love it too, and we want to help our families to get um, resources. Learn how she reaches a population that's predominantly Spanish-speaking. We belong to the community, and we know the community, and um, we have been trusted by the community, so they trusted us. That's next time on What Works, grassroots solutions around the Bay Area. What Works is a production of KALW Public Media. Subscribe to What Works wherever you get your podcasts or at KALW.org slash What Works, where you can find all of our stories. Support for this series comes from Renaissance Journalism's Equity and Health Reporting Initiative with funding from the California Endowment. Thanks also to the Association for Continuing Education, ACE. Our team includes the reporters you heard from today, along with Shireen Adil, Hana Baba, David Boyer, Francisco Delgadillo, Gabe Graben, Angela Johnston, Kristen McCandless, Marissa Ortega-Welch, James Rollins, and Ben Trefney. Thanks for listening to What Works. I'm Sonia Narang.